Hi, Jay Ruane back again. As you know, Dan Lage has been teaching us about civil rights litigation and its intersection with criminal law. And now, my partner Dan Lage, who is the head of our civil rights division, will take over. Thank you, Jay, and welcome back, everyone, to Season 6 of the Connecticut Criminal Law Podcast. We've arrived at our final episode, Episode 10 in this the Civil Rights Edition. Immunities and Defenses is the topic. I'm your host, Dan Lage. I'm going to address my football fans in the audience for this one. If you're a football fan, you know that when the offense takes the field in a game, they've studied their opponent. You know that Bill Belichick has a playbook because he's tried to anticipate the kinds of defenses that he's going to encounter, and he's developed strategies to beat those defenses. The law, by its design, is much like football. It's an adversarial system, and when you're thinking about filing a civil rights lawsuit, it's important to recognize that there are many ways for your opponent to succeed in having your civil rights case tossed out of court. We're going to talk about a few of those defenses here, but I want to stress that if there is truly one reason above all why hiring a lawyer to file a lawsuit on your behalf is a necessity, it is this topic. You see, the internet does an okay job at identifying the theories that a plaintiff can bring in a lawsuit, even the applicable laws that support the lawsuit. The internet actually isn't that bad. However, the internet is horrific as a resource at actually demonstrating the mechanics behind bringing a lawsuit. So here in this last episode of the podcast, I'm going to cover some of the things that your civil rights lawyer should think about before filing a lawsuit and then close the season by discussing immunities. Now, let's go quickly through some common defenses to civil rights cases. And the most common defense that I might say exists is what's called the failure to state a claim defense. What does that mean? That means that the defendant is saying that the plaintiff has not alleged facts that actually create a reason to be in court because there isn't a violation of any law that creates a basis for the plaintiff to even sue. This defense is usually going to be the main support for a motion to dismiss the case, and it underscores the importance of including very detailed and specific facts in a civil rights complaint that allege equally specific legal violations. Another common defense is the statute of limitations defense. Now, many people have a generalized sense of what that means, but the basic concept is that if a plaintiff has not brought his or her case within the time period specified by law, the claim is going to be barred by the passage of time. Depending on which type of civil rights action you're bringing, the statute of limitations can range quite broadly. Moreover, there are certain claims that require preliminary administrative pathways to be exhausted before you actually file the lawsuit, and that further complicates things. Now, those are what we call affirmative defenses, and others exist for sure, but there are also specific defenses like probable cause if you have a case alleging false arrest. There's a defense called lack of a favorable termination if you've alleged malicious prosecution. There's a defense called legitimate business purpose. That's in response to the allegation that there was a discriminatory act that disparately impacted a minority in the workplace. How about the defense of lack of knowledge? 
that can be used by a supervisor in a sexual harassment case. We didn't know, right? There's also a defense called the lack of substantial control. That can be alleged by the school in a Title IX case involving a case like uh, cyberbullying, for instance. They didn't control what happened on the internet outside school grounds. It's important to note that some individuals possess absolute immunity from suit. And we're going to talk about immunities now. And absolute immunity is literally a block in the way of your lawsuit. For instance, if you have absolute immunity, you cannot be sued at all. The most classic example is a judge. Judges have absolute immunity and cannot be sued for damages unless the judge has done something completely outside of the jurisdiction of a judge. And whatever that act was cannot be considered a judicial act. So by way of example, there was one case where a judge ordered the police to drag a lawyer to get into the courtroom. The police literally did that. They went, they found the lawyer, they picked the lawyer up by the suit jacket and dragged the lawyer forcefully into the courtroom. Now that judge was immune from suit because part of a judge's job is to require lawyers to be in court. So it was considered a judicial act. Now, if that judge then came from behind the bench and rolled up his sleeves and knocked out that lawyer, there's no absolute immunity in that case. That's not a judicial act. Likewise, and to me, significantly more frustrating considering their control in the case, prosecutors have absolute immunity. They have absolute immunity for conduct that occurs in connection with their duty in presenting a case. So that means that even if a prosecutor knowingly presents false testimony in court, the prosecutor is absolutely immune from a lawsuit. Does that make sense? It doesn't to me, but that's the law. Other parties that enjoy absolute immunity from suit are government officials like politicians, state legislators, and they're immune from suit for conduct that occurs while they're performing their legislative function. And now to close this season of the podcast, I'd like to discuss what has emerged as the most problematic in civil rights litigation. It's a legal principle that was created solely by the judge by courts all over the United States of America. No, it's not a law that was passed by our elected officials. It was shaped and manipulated in ways that defy logic by judges in legal opinions. And it always seems to result in preventing people from holding bad actors accountable for their actions. Civil rights law is an area of the law that is by its design a mechanism to enforce the requirements of justice. But this next and final topic covers a legal defense available to state actors that just perpetuates injustice. The final topic I'd like to discuss is qualified immunity. Originally, qualified immunity was innocent enough. It was a limited defense available when an officer that was making an arrest made that arrest because the officer had good faith and probable cause. The version of qualified immunity that exists today is a product of judicial activism and it grants immunity to any official when that official engages in behavior that does not violate clearly established constitutional rights that a reasonable person would be aware of at the time. What does that mean in clear language? It means that in almost all cases, if a government official violates someone's constitutional rights, 
or even physically injures that person, that government official cannot be sued for damages. What's even worse is that this legal theory allows the court to throw the case out before any legal discovery is done. Meaning, helpful evidence to your case may remain hidden forever. Meaning, you will never see your day in court. Meaning, that the government official that made you feel devalued, that took away one of your freedoms, that physically harmed you, will get away with it. Because a bunch of judges thought it was the right thing to do. This, of course, is not what the Civil Rights Act of 1871 was designed to achieve. This is not what thousands of soldiers fought for. This is injustice. And so I will end by giving you, the listeners, some examples of how qualified immunity prevented government accountability. Example one. In 2007, a prisoner committed suicide. The prison knew of several previous attempts by this prisoner and did nothing to treat that prisoner, nor did the prison do anything to prevent future suicide attempts. That deceased prisoner's family sued, citing what was the well-established law that prisoners have a right to be free from deliberate indifference by prison officials to their known serious medical needs. But the court denied that lawsuit on qualified immunity grounds. Why? Because there were no prior court decisions that specifically discussed deliberate indifference to the medical need of suicide. Example two. In November 2019, a U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Tennessee said that cops who allowed their police dog to bite a surrendered suspect did not violate clearly established law. There, the victim cited a case where the same court held that it was unconstitutional for officers to sick their dog on a suspect who had surrendered by lying on the ground with his hands to the side. That wasn't sufficient to be clearly established, the court says, because the victim in the current case had not surrendered by lying down. He surrendered by sitting on the ground and raising his hands. Sorry, qualified immunity barred that case. Example three. In July of 2019, it was ruled that it was not well established that cops shouldn't shoot children they've ordered to lie prone on the ground while trying to shoot a dog that posed no threat. Confusing? The story goes that an officer who was courageously stupid enough to fire his weapon at the family dog who was walking over to his 10-year-old buddy who was lying on the ground because the officers commanded the 10-year-old boy to do so. The mental midget of an officer decided to shoot at the dog who posed no threat to anyone, but he missed and instead shattered the boy's kneecaps. Qualified immunity shattered the case too. Finally, and most disgracefully, in 2014, a county health department in Colorado strip searched and photographed a four-year-old girl without any court approval because they incorrectly suspected that the girl was being abused. After finding out that their little girl was subjected to this unconscionable act, the girl's parents sued. The county was given qualified immunity and the case was thrown out. 
Even though in 2009, the Supreme Court ruled that it was illegal to conduct a warrantless strip search of a minor in a case that involved a school student who was suspected to have drugs on her person. But this court in Colorado, the court involving the four-year-old, said this case isn't about drugs, it's about abuse. So it wasn't clearly established that the county could not strip search and photograph a four-year-old naked girl on these facts. Qualified immunity. The most surprising thing about that case is that the parents weren't prosecuted for assaulting the person who took the pictures. The Supreme Court had a chance to reconsider the law of qualified immunity, but on June 15th, 2020, they declined to do so. The only chance to abolish this shameful doctrine is with an act of Congress or your state legislature. This has been an honor and a privilege and my pleasure to have presented to you, the listeners, 10 episodes in season six of the Connecticut Criminal Law Podcast on civil rights. I want to remind you that this was not a podcast for lawyers. This was a podcast for regular people by a lawyer, and I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Thanks for listening. Keep the fight alive. I'll see you in the courts or in the streets. Take care.